Well, good morning. Ah, we are continuing a series entitled Conversations with Jesus, and we're talking about love. What does it look like? What does love look like? Love for God and love for people. As, uh, as we enter into this discussion this morning, we're looking at John chapter 53, all the way to John chapter 8, verse 11, and I entitled it, When the Love of God Hits You Like a Rock. <laughs> the word scandalous comes to mind when I think of this passage. And the word scandalous actually means causing general public outrage. That's what the word means. Um, by some perceived offense against morality or against law. And that's precisely what our passage is about this morning. Reminds me of a, uh, an incident that happened many years ago. We were living in Chicago with our family. And 1994, November 20th, actually, I remember seeing this on uh, TV, this couple being interviewed the, several days after the accident. It's a Chicago minister and his wife, Reverend Dwayne Scott Willis and his wife, Janet, were driving with their six youngest children on, uh, on the, one of the toll roads, the tollways uh, in Chicago. And a semi-truck dropped a piece of metal that actually ended up under, in the, under the, the, the minivan in the undercarriage, hit the gas tank, the entire car exploded, and they lost all six of their youngest children. Now totally bandaged up, wounded, uh, these two people are now in front of a TV screen. And um, what they did next was scandalous. Let me just tell you. The, the TV uh, uh, commentators, the news commentators, uh, all the talk radio shows lit up for the next week as I was listening to how they reacted and responded to uh, these two individuals. Um, Dr. Don... Uh, Voltgen actually did the, um, the memorial service and he recalls meeting the Willis's in a Milwaukee hospital the day after. And the couple greeted him by reciting a verse from Job in the Old Testament, a story of a man who loses everything, including his children, but never his faith. These words were said, the sad thing about all this is so many people do not believe that their faith was real. Vulcan said, they wanted to believe in some sort of trumped-up thing. People were outraged that these two individuals could look at a TV screen and praise God in the midst of such tragedy. How could there be love when so much tragedy actually happened? I mean, the, the news stories were incredulous, yet love prevailed, no question, in this story. The love of God even in the midst of unspeakable tragedy. That's what love does. It's scandalous. Love off the rails. That's what we're talking about, extravagant love, uh, scandalous love in the face of tragedy. Most could be the worst situation you can imagine in the face of sin. Scandalous love. What does it look like? What we're going to see this morning is that love actually breaks through. Hardship, Bitterness, anger, rage, and delivers a final blow to its formidable enemies and brings mercy, forgiveness, and new life. Let's read our passage. In John chapter 7, verse 53, it says, Then all went home. We don't know where they were before because the passage really isn't supposed to be in this particular context in John. We'll get there in a minute but let's read the passage. And so they all went home, 
Jesus went to Mount Olives. And it says that dawn he appeared again at the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before this group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it's commanded that we stone such a woman. Now what do you say? And they were using these questions as a trap in order to have a basis of accusing him, the text tells us. But Jesus bends down, and he starts to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he says to them, let any one of you who was without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. You've probably heard that before. Another translation, he was without sin, cast the first stone. It's probably one of the most recited statements of Jesus. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. As he does this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightens up and asks her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she says, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now, leave your life of sin. It's one of these passages of story, these passages in the, in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, that we really don't know what to do with on several levels. I'll start with the most obvious, and that is there are big brackets around this text. I mean, it may be italicized in your New Testament. Like, stay away from this passage. Warning. We don't know whether Jesus really said this or not. It doesn't really fit. We don't find it in the earliest of manuscripts. In the most reliable manuscripts of the New Testament, it's gone. We don't know why. We don't know why all of a sudden in the 5th century, the copyists began adding this oral tradition to the text, sometimes in Luke chapter 21, sometimes at the end of John, sometimes here in this particular. We don't know why it's happening. We don't know why it just all of a sudden shows up in some of the manuscripts, but the earliest ones don't. But we do know this. It's scandalous. It's one of those that literally has a sign warning, don't enter. And I love signs like that. I don't know about you, but that intrigues me. I just love that. I'm, I'm a mountain biker. Back when I was living in Orange County, used to ride my mountain bike a lot with a group of guys, and we take off. And this particular ride, we went right through Cota de Casa on Bell Canyon, and went, we were headed down toward um, Camp Pendleton. We didn't make it all the way down, but we turned around and came back, and we took a shortcut, dropped down a hill, and all, there it is. There's the sign. It says, trespassing, do not enter, nature preserved. Scientific discoveries underway. And sure enough, what did we do? One at a time, bikes went right over the fence, and off we went and drove right through this scientific discovery area. And uh, we were, you know, a little concerned because when we got through the little village where all the scientists live, they all came out and literally huddled around us. And I'm telling you, they were about to throw a rock at us. Rocks came out. We were in trouble. They were going to call the police. 
I mean, we promised that we didn't touch the birds. We didn't, do, we did the frogs or whatever they were studying. We didn't do, we just carefully worked our way through. It was the only way back. There's no way we could have come the other way. And they let us go finally. But I love signs like that. It reminds me of a sign that I once saw that said, absolutely no trespassing. Violators will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Sign, Sisters of Mercy Covenant. I like that. And so as we approach this story, we recognize the fact that there's question as to where it really fits in the Gospels, but we know it's oral tradition. We really can trace back several writers and commentators. One, Papias, a disciple of John in the second century, mentions this story. And so we know there's a lot of evidence for it, but some people wonder whether it really fits. And I suspect that when the copyists were actually copying the early New Testament and the Gospels, they came to the story and said, there's no way we're putting this one in. There's just no way. This is, you, you can't put this in. Jesus, lenient, permissive, violating the law of Moses, there is just no way. And so it was kind of set aside. It was put in the margin. It was put somewhere else until finally some brave scribes decided it's going in. We're doing it. We're putting it in. And sure enough, it ends up on our New Testament with a warning. And I love that warning because there's something scandalous about this. In, Saint, in fact, St. Augustine is the one who said, some copy of, copyists omitted the story because it seemed to make Christ too lenient toward the sin of adultery. And that's what intrigues me. That's why I like this passage. Why is Jesus doing this? What does it really look like? We may never know. Maybe it's just too dubious, not reliable, or suspicious means dangerous. This woman walks free that can't be. There has to be justice. We live in a world where there's justice and the law demands it. Yet we see this woman and she doesn't pay for her sin at all. Reminds me of the prodigal son. He violated the sacred honor of his entire family in a culture of honor and shame. He had stepped out of bounds. And yet we know the story in the prodigal son of the father, the prodigal father, abundantly overflowing with love, runs towards his shame-filled son. This is now the prodigal daughter. And it's the story of this woman who has violated the sacred trust of marriage. The law is clear. Death is the punishment. Yet she walks free. I, I like... I, I just like that Jesus broke the law. I have a sticker, and I don't know where the bumper sticker is, but it says, it's good every once in a while to break a few laws. I, I don't put it out. Don't tell anybody I have the sticker, but I, I love it. And I used to have it on my desk. It's okay, everyone. In fact, it's kind of healthy. In this case, it is. In this case, it is. In fact, miracles is breaking the law of something, right? The law of nature. Every time a miracle happens, it breaks a law. Uh, my favorite bumper sticker besides that one is, sorry for driving so close in front of you. But anyway, that's another story. But this passage is like a doorstop. That's the way I look at it. It's a doorstop. It's, you can either trip over it, and some people trip over Like, I can't believe he's teaching this passage. 
It's, it's not supposed to be. It's, we don't know whether it's accurate, you know. And I love that. I love challenging that mentality. Um, it's in my nature. And, and some people trip over it. Some people miss it entirely. Like, I just didn't even see it. There's a doorstop. But it can also act to prop open a door to something so grand, so wonderful, so necessary, that once we see its value, we offer it space in our lives to change us. And this is that passage. It offers us three things. First of all, love offers mercy. Love accomplishes forgiveness. And we also know that love inspires new life. The three things that we find about love in this passage. Mercy, forgiveness, and change life. The Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. Gerald Porche says this little story captures magnificently both the gracious and forgiving spirit of Jesus and his firm call to the transformation of life. I consider this text to be divinely inspired and fully authoritative for life. So does Bruce Metzger. So the first one is Jesus offers mercy. Notice the contrast in this passage. The Pharisees, I mean, what are they doing? They are dragging this poor woman, who they say has been caught in adultery, in front of this group there on the Temple Mount, publicly before all these people, with one thing in mind and one thing only. They're not looking for restoration. They're not looking for forgiveness. What are they looking for? They want, they, they, they're vindictive in their behavior. They want to destroy this woman. They want this woman to be stoned to death. And they want to trap Jesus in it as well. They want to discount Jesus' ministry and take this woman's life They represent justice. And Jesus comes in with mercy. There's a big difference. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And so the first thing we see when Jesus has this conversation with them and and teacher, this woman's caught in adultery. What, What The law says condemn her. The law says stone her. What do you say? They were using this question to trap him, by the way. Jesus bends down, takes a minute, stands back up. Teacher, what do you say? And that's when he says this line, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Go ahead. But just make sure you know what you're doing. Just make sure you know what you're doing. He offers mercy. He offers mercy. He's not going to throw the stone. And he recognizes that nobody else is going to throw the stone, and that's mercy. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen today. It is not going to happen. And that's mercy. That's what Jesus offered. Jesus, Paul, referring to this probably a passage like this, says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is therefore no condemnation for those that live in Christ Jesus. We don't have that word in our vocabulary. We are not condemned. Because mercy offers compassion, it offers pity. We see mercy played out in the contrast of condemnation. Notice the vindictive nature of these Pharisees. No trial, 
where are the witnesses? You got to have two witnesses, and they need to, they need to be exactly the same on the same page, and they had need they needed to have verbal as well as they need to have visually seen the act. I mean, the thing's a total setup. It is absolutely impossible for all these things to come together. Total setup. Where's the other man? I mean, some commentators basically say it was a husband trying to do away with his wife and divorce her, but she, he, he want, thought one better. If we could stone her, I get everything she owns. If I divorce her, she takes what's personally hers with her. I mean, this is a pretty bad situation. I mean, if you look at the language here in, in, in its original language, gunakai, epi, moikea, katelemenen, literally means woman upon which adultery has been placed has been brought before you with all of her shame and continued shame. That's what it literally means, that she continues to live in the shame of her life and she cannot get free of that. I mean, that's the, the, the description is so powerful that she's, she's in this scene where the continuing character of her nature is, is part of who she is as she is drugged publicly before Jesus and others. She couldn't shake it. It's who she is until something changes her. She'd remain in her shame. It's true of us. What's going to change in us? And what I find is this. We're just like the Pharisees oftentimes. We love handing out justice, but we want mercy. Don't we? I mean, C.S. Lewis points out in the very first chapter of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis did these broadcasts back in the, in the 40s or 50s in the U.K., and Beer Christianity was, became the book that included all these broadcasts of how he convinced the British people why he believed in God and how he became a Christian. And he begins with the idea that there's a law of nature that runs through every society, and you cannot deny it. There is a law that exists. It's this inexplicable, inexorable law of nature that science can't prove and explain. And we know it's true because he goes very personally. He goes, he goes, let me give you an example. I can break my promise, but if you break a promise to me, you're going to hear about it. We have this double standard. That's what Lewis goes to. He goes to that level to describe the fact that we know we have some law that lives within us that God has put in place, a standard of right and wrong. And we love to dole out justice, but we deeply desire mercy in our own lives. And so in this passage, we find these Pharisees, these vindictive individuals that want nothing more than justice, and they remind me that hurt people hurt people. It's what they do. I'm reading a great book by Danny Silk called Keep Your Love On. It's fantastic. My brother gave me a copy. And it's talking about marriage, but it's talking about relationships, the authentic, loving relationships with boundaries and communication and connection. He says the goal of marriage is connection. The goal of relationships is connection. But you can't connect if you're a powerless kind of person. You need to become a powerful person. And so 
He's describing these two different kinds of people. Powerless people are victims. Powerless people have grown up in an environment where they're, they're fearful and angry and they react and, and they, they control people and they keep people at a distance. And Why? Because they're always taking from people. Because it's what they've learned. They're wounded. And so hurt people hurt people. Powerful people are people that don't react. They respond. I mean, you see this in the passage. Jesus twice sits down. He stoops down. What's he doing? We don't know what he's writing. But he turns away from these Pharisees and from this woman. And he stoops down. And he's writing in the sand. We don't know what he's writing. Is he writing their names? Is he writing their sins? Is he writing a passage from Exodus? Is he writing the law? We don't know. Maybe one particular thought is that he's actually writing out what he's about to say. That was the way Roman magistrates used to do it. They actually would write out, before they would pronounce the decision, they would write it out, and then they would stand up and speak it. And maybe Jesus says, okay, you, you, want, the, you want me to give you a decision here based on Roman law and based upon Old Testament law. Because that's what they were trying to do. They are trying to trap him, right? They wanted him to break one of them. So if he let him off the hook, he broke the Moses, the law of Moses. If he said, yes, go ahead and stone her, then he was actually violating Roman law because Roman law had jurisdiction over the law of Moses at this time in the first century. In fact, they really even weren't stoning people for this. It was just divorce. So there's all sorts of problems, and yet Jesus turns around stoops down and writes something, and he gathers himself and looks powerless. Do you notice that? The powerless nature of Jesus as he stoops down and detaches and pulls away as opposed to engages. And you think, well, this guy's a wimp. He's not even engaging. He doesn't even know what he's going to do. And yet in that, he gains a power that's far greater than theirs when he stands up and says something so profound they've never even thought of this. Go ahead. Go ahead, but just make sure what you're doing, you understand. Because what you're doing is exactly what Paul will then later say in Romans chapter 2, that who has the excuse, you who pass judgment on those, and you do the very same thing yourself? Who is without sin? Cast the first. Go ahead, but just make sure you know what you're doing, because when you do that, you will be stoning yourself. That's what Jesus says. And he's offering this remarkable thing called mercy. If you want to dish out a sentence, go ahead. Be careful. You do it on the basis of the condition of your own heart. Uh, I love um, this little book called um, Love's Endeavor, Love's Expense by W.H. Vanstone. Dr. Vanstone looks at love from three perspectives, and I haven't thought of this before. That love is limitless. Love is without control. And love detaches. And Jesus does all three of these. It's limitless. We set up boundaries of love, don't we? Like, love can only go this far. And we set up this boundary. If you cross this boundary, there's no way you can go further. And Jesus breaks that barrier and keeps going. Then we set up another barrier. And Jesus breaks through that barrier. It's what Vanstone says, it's limitless love. That's what Jesus is offering. Limitless love. There are no barriers, and perfect love is limitless. We, we don't understand that. 
But we see this in this passage that all these barriers are set and, and they probably continue to think that through. What's, what's the next barrier we can lay for Jesus that he can't cross and yet he continues to do that? We see that he li- loves without control. He's not controlling the Pharisees. He's not controlling the woman. In the end, he allows the Pharisees to do what they will and he allows the woman to leave and do as she wishes. He has lost control as it looks, but perfect love, it doesn't control. You don't control people. You love them. You allow them to make their own decisions. You ins- that's, why, that's why over and over in Scripture, we are known, John 13, 35, we are disciples, how come? Because we love. We are known to be disciples because, well, well how do we love? 1 John four nineteen. Because he first loved us. The reason why we're able to love is because you've had an encounter with Jesus, a love encounter, and now you can love. And so we see this without control kind of love through Jesus. And this detachment, you see the detachment? Jesus, as he pulls away and twice stoops down, he detaches, regrouping, which looks powerless, but it's powerful. And, and he's got this great section about parenting, about how it's, it's good for a parent to detach, demonstrate love, give boundaries, and then detach, pull away, take care of oneself, and not be consumed and, 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 and codependent or, or so uh, interconnected that you can't really see the, the true love because it's not detached from the other person allowing the other person to kind of um, make their own decisions. So we see Jesus demonstrating this limitless, without control, detached kind of love that's perfect, mercy. But then he also offers what? Forgiveness. Notice what he says. Where are your accusers? There's no one here to condemn you. Neither will I condemn you. And when Jesus says those words... Has no one condemned you? Nor shall I. And when he says that, we understand that to mean that when there's no condemnation, there's forgiveness. What Jesus is offering is forgiveness rather than the condemnation. The law of Moses, we don't really know exactly whether she should be stoned or strangled and whether they were really even practicing at that time. The Mishnah says that it was mainly divorce and and. So there's there's all sorts of issues here, but Jesus offers true forgiveness. Mark 2, verse 5, when the paralytic man is brought before Jesus, what does he do? He says, your sins are forgiven. And then later, I think in verse 15, it says, that son of man has the power and authority to forgive sins. See, in this scene, Jesus is the only one who can forgive. It reminds me of the gospel. This is the gospel laid out. This is, this is Paul in Romans. As Paul begins his argument in Romans, the first couple chapters, he establishes that every kind of person is under sin. It finally ends up there, but the person that has no interest in God, the heathen, is under sin. The religious person, the Gentile, the non-religious person, everybody has fallen under sin. And then finally he comes to this big statement in Romans chapter 3 
where he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then verse 24, this is this passage. Romans chapter 3, 24. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. That's the story of what we're seeing. What Jesus offers this woman is two things. And we see that in this Romans passage. First of all, he offers her justification. The penalty is paid. She's been vindicated. But more than that, she receives something, a gift, divine righteousness, a divine gift of righteousness. She's now clothed. Forgiveness clothes us with the righteousness of Christ where we are no longer seen as we were before. All that was true of her is no longer true. That's what we get in the gospel. And in Romans chapter 3, we not only get to be justified or made righteous, it says that we, get, we are redeemed. The word redeemed literally means to be released. It's a buying back of one who is captive. Someone frees another person by making the payment of a ransom, an acquittal. Reminds me of the story I heard, I've read it. I can't remember how I found it, but it's the story of Carla Faye Tucker. 1983 in Houston, Texas. She and her boyfriend were part of a break-in robbery and they ended up murdering two people. It was gruesome. She used a pickaxe. And so they both received death sentences. And while on death row, one day, uh, a group of uh, believers came and brought Bibles. And she actually stole one of the little Bibles and took it back to her uh, prison cell and read it and found the grace of Jesus Christ. And when she did it, this is what she says. The full and overwhelming weight and reality of what I had done hit me. No mistake. She was a murderer. I realized for the first time that night what I had done. I began crying that night for the first time in many years. And to this day, tears are part of my life. But yet she had found the grace of Jesus Christ. Her life was changed. For the next 14 years, she led people to Jesus in her state. She appealed to George Bush, the President of the United States, and, and to others, and was finally executed. She didn't want to be set free. She just wanted to continue a ministry of reconciliation in prison. And at her execution, these are her words. The executioner asked, do you have any last words? And she said, yes, sir, I would like to say to you all, the Thornton family and Jerry Dean's family, that I'm so sorry. I hope God will give you peace with this. She looked at her husband. She got married while she was in prison. Baby, I love you. She looked at Ronald Carson. Ron, give Peggy a hug for me. She looked at all present, weeping and smiling. Everybody has been so good to me. I love you all very much. I'm going to be face-to-face with Jesus now. Warden Baggett, thank you all so very much. You have been good to me. 
I love you all very much. I will see you all when you get here. I will wait for you. She was executed by lethal injection on February 3rd, 1998. And as she was executed, she licked her lips and she praised Jesus and you could hear her humming. They had not executed a woman since the Civil War in America. And here's the point. Here's the point of forgiveness. When we no longer see ourselves in the drama of the woman, in that moment when we feel we are free from the accusation and judgment, we lose sight of God's grace. There's one last thing in this passage, and it's the fact that what Jesus does for us in love, he inspires new life. Look what, look what he says to this woman. Woman, go and no longer live a life of sin. Go live a changed life. What you've received, now go use it and live a new life. I mean, that's the gospel, right? That's new life. That's what he's offering us. That's what he's offering every single person here every single day. One commentator says, sin was not treated lightly by Jesus, but sinners were offered the opportunity to start a new life. Gary Burge writes, Jesus is not simply committed to the requirements of the law, but to the care and transformation of the woman before him. Full requirements of the law, yes, but forgiveness as a result of mercy brings new life. And sadly, how many of us do not receive this transform life. We stop short. Forgiveness and mercy transforms us to live a new life. The grace of forgiveness is accomplished by grace to live a new life in the Spirit. To that, the woman was sent out into the world as is every justified sinner. Reminds me of a great story, and I'm going to close with this. Flannery O'Connor. I like Flannery O'Connor's short stories. And she writes one. It's called Revelation. It's about a, just a despicable human being. Her name is Mrs. Turpin. And she has this passive husband, Claude, and they live on a farm, and she has gout or something. I don't know what, what something's going on on her ankle. So she's got to go to the doctor, and she comes into the doctor's office and tells Claude where to sit and pushes him down. And she sits down, and everything she thinks, she says out loud. And she can't believe all the horrible people that are in the doctor's office sitting next to her. All the ugly, poor, colored folk. And, I mean, the language that that O'Connor uses to describe this woman is really not suitable for public reading. I mean, that's the kind of story this is. And, uh, and so she proceeds to literally call out every single person in the waiting room and describes them and under her breath. She's like, look at that person and that person. And by the end, you're, just, you're so disgusted, you can't even believe it. And there's this one little girl, I think her name is like Mary Grace, very appropriately named, is done with this woman. Picks up a book that she's been reading and this, Mrs. Turpin has been looking at Mary Grace and thinks that she's a little lunatic girl and what's wrong with her and where's her mother and all sorts of problems. And, 
and she just hucks the book, and Mrs. Turp hits her right in the forehead, cuts her forehead open. She falls over. Everybody goes nuts. The ambulance is called. Doctors come in. They grab poor little Mary Grace, and they inject her with some a sedative and haul her off. But before she's hauled off, Mrs. Turpin is looking at Mary Grace, and she's waiting for something out of her, out of her mouth. Like, what is she going to say to me now? And she looks up at her, and she says, Go to hell where you were before, you warthog. And she just looks, what? you got to be kidding me. I mean, it's, it's pretty strong language here. Go back to hell where you were before, you warthog. And Mrs. Turpin can't even believe it, and she's hauled off, and Mrs. Turpin leaves and is taken back to her farm, and she's reflecting on all this, and she's asking herself, am I really a warthog? Am I really a warthog that's sent to hell? Is that really true of me? And she's beginning to really grapple with the fact that maybe she really is a warthog. So she goes out and feeds the hogs, and she's sitting there, and she and Claude is off doing something else, and it's the evening, and the, finally the evening is setting. And, and uh, there she is over the, warthog, over the hog pen, and, and she's leaning down thinking of herself, and is she a warthog? Am I a warthog? Am I really that bad of a person? And then all of a sudden... Upon it, a vast horde of souls were rumbling toward heaven. She has this vision of all these people heading to heaven. And it's people that were sitting in the doctor's office. There were whole companions of white trash, clean for the first time in their lives, and bands of colored people in white robes, and battalions of freaks and lunatics, shouting and clapping and leaping like frogs. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once as those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything, the God-given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for the good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. She lowered her hands, gripped the rail of the hog pen, her eyes small and fixed unblinkingly on what lay ahead. In a moment, the vision faded, but she remained where she was, immobile. At length, she got down, turned off the faucet, made her slow way onto the darkening path to the house. In the woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses had struck up. But what she heard were the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting hallelujah. Had she changed? Is she a different person? Is she no longer a warthog? Had she received the grace of God? That's the question this morning. That when we come encounter, encounter Jesus in all of his glory, we encounter him in his mercy and his forgiveness opportunity for change life so that we might go and live differently and join the choir hallelujah let's pray father we go to the communion table now and we want to enter into a a chorus of hallelujah for what you've given to us there's no greater message on the face of this earth than jesus standing up turning to us as the woman, like the woman, and saying, I do not condemn you. What I offer you is forgiveness. Go, live a new life. May we go 
May we live. May we offer the grace that we've received to others. May it change us. In Jesus' name, amen.